morning, church. The scriptures reading this morning will be taken from Romans. First chapter, starting with the 20th verse, we're going to go through 25. Romans 1, 20 through 25. And I read. Trying to adjust my eyes, I'm sorry. <laughs> For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and, the, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And it's changed it the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. May God bless the hearers and doers of his word. Holding in my hands this morning, Perhaps the two most influential books in all of human history, one you're familiar with, with the Bible, and the other, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. The question that we have before us this morning is, can I believe both? Can I believe both? A question that we have the right to ask. It's a valid question. There are some that believe there is no supernatural at all that there's only what we see, and its origin is explained by naturalistic evolutionary processes. And these individuals most often are self-professed atheists. And then there's another group of individuals that we might term or coin, or they themselves would term or coin themselves as agnostic. They just, they just don't know about whether or not God exists. And then there are those that are strictly believers in deity and what their sacred text, and namely for us this morning, our, our Bible, says about origins. But then there's a fourth category, and this category is made up of those that, that believe in parts of both. 
They are sometimes known as theistic evolutionists, that word theistic indicating a belief in God, belief in theism or theos, and evolutionists being the fact that they believe also in the theory of evolution. They profess a belief both in God, but they also ascribe to the tenets of the theory of evolution. I have a humble recognition as we begin this morning that this is a sensitive topic. A large majority of the individuals in this room are, are tied to oil and gas, and in so doing, they are also tied in some way to or have backgrounds in geology. And so through my education in, in wildlife biology, and I, no doubt many educations in, in geology and other sciences, there has been a regular uh, diet of millions and billions of years that have been included in those educations. I also recognize that science is extremely useful and beneficial. As I stand here before you this morning and we think about what's going on in our world today and as, as somewhat of a panic is starting to ensue because of, of a, a virus that is going around in various countries, that, that science plays an integral and important part in helping us to find cures and to develop and engineer certain things. And so please understand this morning that as an individual with a degree in science and as an individual that, that very much appreciates modern medicine and various other sciences, that, that I recognize that science has an important place. This morning I want us to ask the question or, or talk about the important reason for why we're discussing these things. Why does it matter? And the reason we're discussing this this morning is because ultimately what you believe about origins and the process by which all life has arrived will have an effect in determining your worldview. What it is that you believe about the world around you and what it is that you believe about how you are to act because of where you came from. And so as we talk about these things, it's important because your worldview matters in shaping how you live and how you treat others and what purpose you see in your life. And so our purpose here this morning is not, number one, to question anyone's sincerity or motives in desiring to perhaps believe both in the Bible and in evolution. Let me say this, I very much appreciate the gumption that it takes for many of you in the science world, the science industry, whether it be oil and gas or wherever else it may be, to take a stand for your belief in God in the face of the scientific community. I was, in, I was very much involved in the thick of that in my, my time in education. And so I very much appreciate your willingness to say and be here this morning as a Christian if you perhaps ascribe to these tenets. But secondly, it's not to deny the fact that evolution exists on any level. What some have termed as microevolution, that's changes within a species, certainly do occur. And we can certainly see changes within species even today. It's not to call into question the validity or truthness of the theory of evolution. We're not going to break down the ins and outs of evolution and get into a whole bunch of technical scientific minutia this morning. That can be discussed another day. Nor is our purpose to deliberate on the existence of God. This morning we're talking about the idea of theistic evolutionism in which an individual believes in God but also believes in evolution. And so. We're, we're approaching this with the understanding that, that we believe in the existence of God. Our purpose this morning is twofold. 
Number one is to ask whether or not the two worldviews, the worldview of the Bible and the worldview of evolution, are compatible. That is, the scientific macroevolution-driven worldview and the spiritual Bible-based worldview. Do they unify in what they say, or are they unified in what they say? Do they come together? Do they meet in the, in the middle, or are they polar opposites? And secondly, is to ask the Christian, have you considered the implications of holding to both of these doctrines? And so let's begin in our discussion of this idea with some definition of terms. It's always important for us to define terms if we ever are to engage in a deliberation on a matter. And so as we define terms, let's consider first from Jerry Coyne's book, Why Evolution is True, one of, uh, consequently, coincidentally, one of the only books, one of, I read some others, okay, cover to cover in school, but one of the only books that I read cover to cover for sure. And this is his definition from this book, Life on Earth, on, on evolution. Life on Earth evolved gradually, beginning with one primitive species that lived more than three and a half billion years ago. It then branched out over time, throwing off many new and diverse species. And the mechanism for most, but not all, of evolutionary change is natural selection. He goes on to talk about in the first chapter, there are six components of evolutionary theory. Evolution, obviously being part of the grand evolutionary theory, the the big picture is that a species undergoes genetic changes to produce, over time, different DNA, changes in DNA. But the second component of this is gradualism. That is to say that usually it takes many generations to produce a substantial evolutionary change. But number three, the third component, is speciation. This is the concept that various species split off from one another. And over the course of time, they begin to form distinct and separate species. And then the flip side of that coin is number four, common ancestry, which states that you can trace back through the course of time to any one common ancestor that various species will share together, ultimately coming back to one common ancestor, which if we were to go back and look at his definition of evolution, which is beginning with one primitive species. And then the fifth component of evolution is natural selection, the idea that genetic differences within a species that affect an individual's ability to survive and reproduce will lead to good genes surviving to the next generation and poor genes being eliminated in the next generation. And then the fifth component of evolution, or the sixth component of evolution is non-selective mechanisms. This could be things like random changes through large offspring count or mutation. So he's not saying that natural selection is the only thing that drives evolution, that there are also other things that drive evolution. And this is directly from the book of Why Evolution is True. But then we have defining our terms, the understanding with regard to special creationism or intelligent design, that the universe exhibits purposeful design, and that because of the evidence of that design, the origin of the universe can only be attributed to and credited to an intelligent designer. And so as we think about these things this morning with regard to intelligent design, for our purposes, obviously, we're going to strictly limit our understanding of these things to the Genesis account of Scripture as Christians. But these ideas, or the idea of intelligent design, is not limited only to Christianity, is, is also in, in, integrated into many different religions. 
And so the idea of intelligent design states that it was designed purposefully by an intelligent designer. And so we might ask the question, when just on the surface of these definitions, why do some people believe in both? And so just a few, and certainly this is not an exhaustive list, but it will help to maybe give us some answers as to why people believe in both. Number one, they believe because they believe that these are compatible with each other in some form or fashion. Secondly, they believe that evidence for evolution is too strong to deny. They believe that evolution heightens God's glory. And they believe that beliefs about the physical don't matter. Not that they say that the beliefs about physical are of no consequence, but that the, the one thing that's more important is the, your beliefs about the spiritual matters. And then number five, they believe that the Genesis account is simply not sufficient to explain origins. And so what most theistic evolutionists believe is that God is the creator, but... Number two, that God used or uses evolution to bring about life. And that everything is explainable materially and naturally. That once God got it going, so to speak, that everything that we see as a result today is only because of naturalistic explanations, particularly through the theory of evolution. And then fundamentally, this is ultimately kind of what is at the root of it all, that scripture tells us who created the universe, but not how. That tells us who, but not how. So what do, we, what do we do with this? There are a variety of attempts that are made in reconciling the technical details of evolution with the language of Genesis, the narrative of the Bible, and we'll examine a number of these ideas this evening. If at the end of the lesson there are still questions or thoughts that might have been left uncovered, I would encourage you to attend tonight to hear the remaining thoughts. And if, if after that, even still, there are things that are on your mind or questions that you might have, I'm glad to sit down and discuss those things with you. But I believe that if we but take just a moment to approach these matters philosophically, that we will see and we'll come to a conclusion about whether or not they're compatible based upon certain implications. And so before we can ever really come to that conclusion, let's, let's see what both sides says and then draw some conclusions based upon that. That's our approach this morning. What does evolution say? What does scripture say? Are they unified and compatible? So the narrative of evolutionists, right? Before we ask, can we reconcile evolution with the biblical account, we must ask, what does evolution say? And specifically, what do proponents of evolution this morning assume? And the reason we emphasize the word assume is because it's a constant refrain in science that science doesn't speculate. It just gives the data. But ultimately, the overall theory of evolution is a compilation of a number of speculations that are attempting to interpret the data and describe the past. And so ultimately these are speculations. The, the, the grand theory of evolution is a speculation based upon interpretation of certain data. And so these are some assumptions of the theory of or the teaching of evolution. Number one, that given enough time, small changes lead to big changes across species. That all known organisms are descendants of one common ancestor. By the way, many of faith allege that evolution teaches we evolve from apes. But evolutionists don't teach that. They teach that humans and apes both descended from a common ancestor. 
It's my hope this morning that we will try to speak accurately about what evolutionists believe and to not simply make broad sweeping statements and overgeneralizations about what we think evolutionists might believe, but rather what they truly say. And so these are some assumptions that evolutionists are, are led to, that everything is descended from one common ancestor. They don't believe that your prior ancestor is, is a monkey necessarily. They believe that you and apes and I both descended from a common ancestor. Number three, that everything is always materially explainable, that there are no supernatural events or explanations that can be given. All matter and energy has always existed. The first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy, necessitates that all matter, matter and energy that exists today has always existed. That there was never a point at a time in the distant past that ma this matter or energy that exists today, that it didn't exist. It exists maybe in a different form today, but it's always been there. And so, consequently, there's no beginning or end to time. And so, number six, the origin of life is non-supernatural. This includes social structures, behaviors, morality, Everything that we see in the, with regard to the origin of life is explained by some naturalistic, non-supernatural mechanism. Evolution is led from the simple to the complex. That at one point, that primitive species in a primordial soup, as sometimes it is said, the, the very beginning of time, though maybe it's not actually the beginning of time, it's just time as we know it, began and was simple, but has now led to where we are today in a complex universe. The driving forces of evolution are blind. Richard Dawkins described natural selection as the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and that which we now know is the explanation of the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has not purpose in mind, he said. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, nor sight at all. If it could be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. And so, generally speaking, believers in the theory of evolution hold to the tenet that the driving forces of evolution are blind, that there is ultimately no purpose by which organisms and species have come to be the way that they are today. Read into that, there is no God controlling evolution. Number nine, present day data can be extrapolated from today to any point in the past. In other words, anything that you read about today as far as data is concerned, that you can multiply that out across time and that it would be accurate today and it would, as it would be uh, in, in past distant uh, time periods. And so if a, if a rate that we see today de uh, demonstrates that it takes X amount of time for this to happen, it must have taken this amount of time for that to happen thousand years ago and so if we continue to extrapolate that over time and based upon the, the rates that we see we would ultimately be led to conclude that, that that earth this universe is millions or even perhaps billions of years in age and then number 10 evolution will persist in the distant future that's what evolution says but let's look and consider what the narrative of scripture says 10 core doctrines number one Creationism is a matter of faith. Turn your Bibles and look with me at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 3. Realize this morning that everything that you believe about the Bible or about the world outside of the Bible, whatever it is, there is some measure of faith that you have, have 
come to in determining what you believe about something. Because ultimately, as you think about some of the, the, the movies that have come out, like The Matrix, people begin to ask, well, am I really here? Have I, am I not just part of some grand you know, computer program? And maybe I'm a figment of my imagination. And I say that not to be, to be ugly, but to say that there's a matter of faith that is, or an element of faith that comes to every belief or conclusion that, that we draw. And so whether you believe in evolution or you believe in the Bible, there is some sort of faith. Bible faith is, is a step further in that there's steadfast trust conjoined with obedience. But consider Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. The Hebrew writer says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, we weren't there to see God create the world. And we we're just reading the Word of God, and we're trusting what it says. Yes, Romans chapter 1, as we looked at our, at our scripture reading this morning, Paul says that we can see God at work, or we can see his handiwork in the creation around us, that so ultimately we can come to that conclusion, but ultimately there's a measure of faith that's involved in saying, yes, I believe in God. And so creationism is a matter of faith, and we don't deny that. To say it's purely science and purely test tube evidence would be to deny what Hebrews 11.3 says, that creationism is a matter of faith. And that's okay. That's not something to shy away from. Number two, creationism says that there was a beginning. And you understand this from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, also John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The idea, the, the concept of the beginning is not foreign to you, that, that at one point there was nothing, and now as we see it today, that there is something because of a beginning. Number three, there was an entity in existence prior to creation, this entity being God. He was immaterial, supernatural, and he existed prior to creation. And outside of this immaterial, spiritual entity, God, nothing existed outside of him. And so he is the creator of, of the, the natural laws that we see around us, God is not subject to the natural laws. If we were to look at Acts chapter number 17, verses 24 through 29, we would see Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill and how he said that God is not like we are. He doesn't need anything from us. There's a distinction and a difference between God. God is not bound by time. God is not bound by the natural laws in which we are bound in this, in this realm. And number five, creation was universal. It was more than matter. If we were to look back at Genesis 1, verse 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you think about it, before the beginning there was nothing. There wasn't even something for the universe to be inside of. That ultimately at the beginning creation initiated more than just the matter. It initiated the realm for which matter is inhabiting. Number seven, or six, God was the single driving force of creation. There's no mention anywhere in Scripture of a secondary driving force. A theistic evolutionists would, would say that, that God perhaps created, as we mentioned earlier, created things, got it going, but that the driving force of everything is evolution to get us to where we are today. The creation event spanned days. Genesis chapter 1, Exodus chapter 20, and verse 11. Not weeks, not years, not months or millennia. 
very clearly it states that it spanned days. And we'll talk about this more tonight. As we said, there are people that, that will try to, uh, to rectify the, the language of Genesis with the teaching of evolution by approaching certain words to mean different, different things. We'll talk about that more tonight. But the Bible clearly, if we just come to, with what it, to it with what it says, clearly says that the creation event spanned days. Number eight, the creation came to a completion. Genesis chapter two, that God was finished. The Bible says that God ended the work which he had made in chapter two and verse number two. And then number nine, creation is less than 10,000 years of age. We don't know the exact number, Generally, it's estimated by uh, various uh, scholars that, that look at genealogies and various historical dates throughout the Bible. The, the estimate for the earth is, a, is around six to 10,000 years of age. And that can vary a little bit because when Methuselah died at 969, we don't know if he was 969 and, and one month or 969 and 11 months, right? And so there's some ambiguity a little bit there to how exactly these genealogies are, are laid out, okay? But when we can calculate all of these things, and the scholars have, they come to a conclusion that based upon what Scripture says, that it's about six to 10,000 years of age, which is a far cry from the three and a half billion years that we talked about earlier. And then number 10, a global flood shaped our present world. And so it's a very important key doctrine or, or, or recognition from te- the Scriptures because it helps us to understand and our worldview helps, uh, helps to shape our worldview to see that things that we see around us that may seem to be shaped by uniformitarianism could ultimately have been shaped by catastrophism, ultimately a global flood. And so simply put, just on the surface of these doctrines, what they say, they're not compatible. They aren't. Certainly there are parts or portions, components, namely things like mutation or even the survival of the fittest that are part of the evolutionary theory that are observable and testable. But at large, the core overarching narrative, the big picture narrative of organic evolution is inconsistent, it's incompatible with the narrative of the Bible. They are not compatible in what they say about the beginning and cause of the universe. They're not compatible about what they say about the age of the universe. They're not compatible about what they say designed life as we know it today. They're not compatible about what they say establishes morality. And they're not compatible about what they say about the presence of a soul. Ultimately, evolution says that your decisions and your actions are purely a result of your genetic disposition and purely a result of the influencing factors of the world around you and not because of an internal God-given soul or morality or intellect. And so I want us to consider as we close this morning some implications of choosing to believe both. Coming to this conclusion, right, that they're not compatible isn't just about being a, it's not about being a science denier with our head in the sand and saying, you know, I'm not going to listen to what this evidence says. It's not about that. It's about weighing the two things aside each other and asking, are they compatible? It's about logically reasoning through the implications of such a teaching. And so reason and logic lead one to conclude that if evolution is true, then scripture simply cannot be trusted. It simply cannot be trusted. If evolution is true until Darwin and his contemporaries came along, everyone who read Genesis chapters 1 through 11 were misinformed. They believed falsehood 
because until Darwin came along, they thought that God created the world in six days, in six literal days. But until Darwin came, once Darwin came along, then people in, in the, the narrative that we're talking about now, they were, the light was revealed to them. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit would be responsible for that, for not clearly communicating to us enough what God did and how God did it. It's as if God was, was pulling the wool over our eyes and saying that he created it in six days when until Darwin came, we couldn't understand that the world was actually, in Darwin's mind, formed over millions and billions of years. On the other hand, if scripture is true and is inerrant as it claims to be, while though evolution attempts to explain and attempts to be a paradigm for understanding the history of the universe, it is as a whole categorically untrue and therefore cannot be accepted alongside God's word. But secondly, if evolution is true, reason logically one to conclude that if evolution is true, then morality is subjective. In evolution, the bottom line is about perpetuating your genetics. It's about your genetics being perpetuated to the next generation. That's ultimately what it's all about. Whether that's accept, being accepting of certain sexual behaviors, whether that's being accepting of certain uh, moral faux pas that, that would lead to things in, in, a, in a, a society that would cause others harm. Ultimately, what, who's to say that if I like your wife better than mine, that I can't just stab you, kill you, and take your wife for mine? Because ultimately, it's about perpetuating my genetics. In fact, in, in uh, page number 228 of this book, Is Evolution is True? That's ultimately what Jerry Coyne says. Listen to what he says. A second category of behaviors includes those very likely to have evolved by selection, but whose adaptive significance is not quite as clear as, say, parental care. Sexual behavior is the most obvious. In parallel with many animals, human males are largely promiscuous and females choosy. This despite the socially enforced monogamy that prevails in many societies. What he's saying is, monogamy is not natural. He says, males are larger and stronger than females and have higher levels of testosterone, making an excuse for, for those that have cheated on their spouse, a hormone associated with, the, with aggression. In societies where reproductive success has been measured, its variation among males is invariably higher than among females. Statistical surveys of personal ads and newspapers. Think about the media that we see today, the things that are advertised towards males. You understand what I'm saying. Statistical surveys of personal ads and newspapers, granted not the most rigorous form of scientific investigation, have shown that while men search for younger women with bodies suited to childbearing, women prefer somewhat older males who have wealth, status, and a willingness to invest in their relationship. All of these features make sense in light of what we know about sexual selection in animals. While this doesn't make us quite the equivalent of elephant seals, the parallels strongly imply that features of our body and behavior were molded by sexual selection. So ultimately, if there is a unfaithful spouse, they could say, according to the theory of evolution, that's just the way that I'm genetically predisposed that ultimately I'm trying to perpetuate, perpetuate my genetics as much as possible and through as many in, women as possible, a man might say. And so you see where some of these implications lead us and draw us to that morality is subjective. What is this life about? In scripture, though, 
the bottom line is all about glorifying God and denying self. The world that we see around us, as has been shaped by the worldview of, of evolution, says get whatever you want, appease whatever desire you have, because today is all that there is, tomorrow will be but just dust. But the Bible says the bottom line is about glorifying God and denying self. It's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. Number three, reason and logic lead one to conclude that if evolution is true, then Adam and Eve and the origination of sin are fiction. The origination of sin are fiction. Looks like I missed this one on the slide here. But if evolution is true and you reject the Genesis account, then you're left with sin being a purely evolutionarily animalistic behavior and not one's own personal responsibility. As we said a moment ago, I'm sinning simply because that's what evolution led me to do. It's not sin because of what happened in the garden. If scripture is true, though, God has given me free will. I'm accountable for my actions. James chapter 4 verse 17 says to him that knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. Sin is lawlessness, First John tells us. This idea that sin exists and it originated in the garden is found in scripture. When you look at these two opposed to each other, Adam and Eve and the origination of sin being fiction, then we begin to wonder then, is Jesus even true? Because he's found in the same genealogy as Adam is in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Or is Jesus just an allegorical figure? But number four, reason and logic lead one to conclude that if evolution is true, then Jesus was wrong or he lied. Jesus was at best misinformed or at worst a liar. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus says, have you not read? Have you not heard? That he, bege- that he which made them at the beginning made them both male and female. Evolution says that various sexes evolved independently of one another. But at the beginning of time in the Bible, it says God created both male and female at the beginning, not millions and billions of years after the initial creation account. The reason and logic then lead one to conclude also that if Jesus was wrong or lied, that Jesus isn't Lord. That Jesus isn't Lord. He isn't Lord of because of what we just considered, but also because as a human being, according to evolution, he's simply just another cog in the evolutionary machine. If Jesus lied, he's not worth following. If Jesus was misinformed and didn't know, he's not worth calling God. And so therefore, if we're trying to marry evolution with Christianity, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Because Jesus, if Jesus was wrong about it, then there's no reason to follow him. And finally, if evolution is true, then, Jesus, then God is stripped of his glory. If evolution is true, then God is stripped of his glory. In the minds of theistic evolutionists, God is reduced to an honorary first cause. It's like a, a Rube Goldberg machine in which you've seen those that, that the individuals will set up various uh, domino effect types of contraptions throughout their house in which they'll drop a ball over here and as it rolls down, it knocks over this particular pin and then it swings over and it hits this item over here which then leads it to, to, tr- uh, to topple over and hit something else ultimately then leading to your final cause down the end. That, that ultimately in the minds of a, a theistic evolutionist, the, the God is just that honorary first cause in which he got it started but evolution that's the one that brought us to where we are today. 
But in the minds of those that strictly take the word of God for what it says, God is omnipotent. God is so powerful. God is so amazing and majestic that he could just but speak into existence the things that we see around us. We see this in Jesus in his ability to calm the, the waves and the storm of the sea in which he was on the Sea of Galilee. We see that power in God throughout all of eternity as we look into the mountains and the majestic things that we see around us into the depths of the sea, as we look into the stars and the, the distance of the far distance galaxies, we see and we know that if God created those things in just but six literal days, that God is so powerful and so omnipotent and so amazing. But if we deny him that, we strip him of his glory. And so what's the big deal? Because when someone degrades and tears down your wife or your mother or your kids, you defend them. We must defend and hold up the honor of our God in heaven who created you and me and everything we see. Because when you accept a purely naturalistic explanation for origins, your worldview shifts such that you must also accept a naturalistic explanation for ethics and morality. It leads to a shifting sand, a slippery slope that leads to anarchy ultimately in our morality and our society around us. Because you can't serve God and mammon, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And ultimately, as we close, science has been, can, been, can, can be, and will again be wrong. Even if we think evidence seems to be pointing at certain things, we must remember that our minds and our eyes can be faulty. If there is a possibility that science is wrong about the age of the earth, why must the Bible be the one to conform to the age of evolution and not the other way around? We're not speaking to the atheist here that has no faith in God, a God capable of speaking anything into existence, much less communicating to us accurately what actually happened at the beginning. We're speaking to individuals this morning as Christians that have staked their entire lives, or at least should have, staked their entire lives on this book. If you can't trust it, why are you following it? The truth of the matter is that Scripture can be trusted. And following it means sometimes staking our jobs on it. Sometimes means staking relationships on it. Sometimes it means sacrificing those things that are important to us because we believe what the Word of God says. The truth of the matter is, as we said, is that Scripture can be trusted, that Jesus was not a liar that morality is not subjective, and that God has enacted a plan for our sin. And the creator of this grand, intricately designed universe came down to this lowly planet for me and for you to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. That's the story that's most important in all of this, that Jesus has come to offer himself as a sacrifice so that you and I can be in a right relationship with God again. If you're not in a right relationship with God this morning, make that right today. If you're not a Christian, have your sins washed away in baptism, proclaiming your faith in Jesus as the one to be trusted. If you are a Christian and you've gone by the wayside, make those things right. Do whatever it needs to be done this morning as together we stand and as we sing.